Good morning. I'm Sharon Pearson, president of Salem City Club. Thank you for spending part of your Friday with us. Our season's winding down. After today, we have three programs remaining for this year's schedule. On April 16th, Willamette River Keepers will tell us about why we need to pay attention to our river. On April 30th, Oregon Secretary of State Shamia Fagan will discuss several issues keeping her office busy. And on May 14th, we will close the season with a panel of journalists who will give us an overview of what happened in this year's legislative session. We hope you will sign up and join us. Visit SalemCityClub.com for more information and to register. Thank you to our members and our friends who continue to support Salem City Club through your membership and donations. The board and the program committee are very grateful for the ongoing help. Thank you. In addition, City Club would not be able to present programs without the generous support of our supporting business sponsors. They are KMUZ Community Radio, Lou Jean Fobert Graphic Design, Pioneer Trust Bank, Rich Duncan Construction, and Virgil T. Golden Funeral Home. I'm also very happy to announce that today's program is sponsored by the Alliance of Independent Colleges and Universities. I'd like to introduce Brent Wilder, and he is the president of the Alliance. He will tell you a few things about the, uh, the Alliance. Good afternoon. I'm Brent Wilder, president of the Oregon Alliance of Independent Colleges and Universities. The Alliance and its member institutions are delighted to serve as the sponsor of today's Salem City Club event. The Alliance member institutions have been dedicated to serving Oregon students, families, and supporting a thriving economy since before statehood. Today, we're doing more for Oregon's first generation and students of color than ever before with minimal state investment. Collectively, we serve over 26,000 students, of which 11,500 are Oregon residents, and 85% of undergraduate students at Alliance institutions receive institutional aid in the form of grants and scholarships. We contribute substantially to Oregon's degree completion totals by making high-quality degrees affordable through aid from federal, state, and institution resources. Next, I'd like to share a little bit about students that are attending uh, Alliance institutions. 28% of undergraduate students attending Alliance institutions receive federal Pell Grants. The on-time four-year graduation rate of Alliance institutions is 62%. The on-time four-year graduation rate of Pell Grant recipients at Alliance institutions is 56%. 32% of undergraduate students at Alliance institutions identify as a student of color. 22% of undergraduate students at Alliance institutions are the first in their family to attend college. And finally, of all transfer students, 45% previously attended an Oregon Community College. On top of helping to prepare Oregon's future workforce, our member institutions are an integral part of our state and local communities. We make substantial investments and contributions to our local and state economies. Our recent economic impact studies show that Alliance member institutions employ nearly 7,000 faculty and staff and Alliance member institutions spend approximately $800 million annually in their communities on instruction, salaries, benefits, and operations. The same studies show that private nonprofit institutions save taxpayers $462 million per year 
by not having to support the students who attend Oregon independent nonprofit colleges and universities. Thank you again for the opportunity to sponsor today's event. And I'm certain that you will find Dr. Thorsett's presentation about the trends affecting higher education and Willamette University's response to be intriguing. Thank you very much, Brent. I appreciate it. We appreciate the uh, sponsorship for today's program. And we thank everyone who has helped City Club's mission to promote civic discourse and keep the community informed. And now here is our program lead, Russ Beaton, who will introduce our speaker. Morning, Russ. Morning, Sharon, and thank you very much. Uh, we are very pleased to have with us today, Dr. Stephen Thorsett, who for the last 10 years has been uh, the 25th president of Willamette University. Good morning, Steve, and we're happy to have you with us. Thanks, Dr. Thorsett has uh, certainly had an eminent career prior to returning to Willamette, as, as most of you already know. He is a Salem native, and so this uh, serving at Willamette has been pretty much a coming home operation. Uh, prior to coming back, he graduated with great honors in summa cum laude from Carleton College, got his PhD and master's at Princeton, has served on the faculty at Princeton as a research fellow at Caltech, and then most recently at University of California at Santa Cruz, where he served as chair and professor in the Department of Astronomy and Astrophysics. And then also finally served as the Dean of the Department of Physical and Biological Sciences. That's all quite a mouthful, Steve. Um, his, he and his wife, Rachel, live in South Salem in the Willamette President residence, of course. And their daughter, Laura, just graduated from Harvard a year or two ago and it currently works in Washington, DC. Personally, I think I first recall meeting Steve Thorsett when uh, I and my son enrolled in a fly tying class and Stephen and his twin brother David were also enrolled in that class with their, their father Grant, who was a good friend and colleague of mine in, at uh, Willamette University. So. We had a good time in that class. Uh, I think, uh, Steve, you and your brother and my son were in junior high school at the time, so had yet to even enter your eminent career at South Salem High. And I would, I would imagine you haven't had a lot of time lately to uh, do fly fishing, but I would remind you that an elk hair caddis is probably the best fly all around for Willamette, for uh, Oregon waters and with that, but that's not our topic for today. Uh, we're going to hear from Steve about um, the challenges currently in higher education, how things are looking here in our region in the Northwest, especially among our sister universities uh, in the liberal arts area. And finally then honing in on how is Willamette University doing right now and what are you up to? So. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Dr. Stephen Thorsett to Salem City Club. Steve, you're on. Well, thanks so much, Russ. Um, I, I hope that my audio is a little bit more successful than Brent's was. I, I certainly <laughs> thank you for the intro and thank the, the club for inviting me to join you. It's been too many years 
since I have been together with City Club. Um, and I am sorry that we have to, to do this in, in this uh, electronically mediated way that we've all become used to over the last year. I hope that I will be able to, to visit um, the club one day again um, soon in person in the not too distant future. I, I do want to, to add my thanks um, to the Alliance for sponsoring this program. The Alliance of Independent Colleges is the group of about uh, two dozen um, independent um, colleges and universities in Oregon that, that works together collaboratively and, and plays a, a really important um, role in higher education of all kinds in Oregon. And it's very kind of them um, to, to sponsor this particular production. So when I read in the Salem Reporter a couple of days ago what I would be talking about today, I thought Ross has certainly made a mistake here that um, surely he's invited me to come and give you a, a set of uh, seminars, maybe a whole semester long set of lunchtime um, seminars on the future of higher education. This is a topic which is impossibly um, large and complex and I, I could spend um, an, an hour talking about any small piece of. But one of the things that I've certainly learned um, in my past visit um, with City Club and with other um, similar groups is that the most interesting part of these presentations is always the question and answer period when we can focus in on, um, on what's at top of mind and of most interest um, to the people who are here today. And so what I plan to do today is give you a, a pretty fast tour through the topics that um, Russ just referred to, um, both some of the, the short-term challenges that COVID has introduced in higher education, because I know that that's been a, a question I get a great deal from people in the Salem community, but also um, just a, a very quick um, touch on some of the broader systemic challenges that higher ed is facing um, today across the country. And then um, a, a very fast tour through what Willamette is doing in response to that and why I think um, this is one of the most exciting times at, at your city's um, downtown university um, in a long time, but both because of the, the challenges that we face and the, the creative um, approach that our faculty and staff have taken um, to meeting those challenges and because of the positioning that, that we're taking um, toward the future. So, uh, we have been part of Salem, of course, since the very beginning, literally since the very beginning. Um, the oldest university in the Western United States, um, it was the division of our original property in two halves, one half of which became um, the part of the city that was developed into the state capital and the state offices and the other half, which is still um, in the control of, of Willamette University. This picture um, is 120 years old. Um, it, it shows um, two buildings, both um, reshaped by fire, the old capital, of course, which um, was totally destroyed and replaced um, in the, around 1940, and, and Waller Hall, which was built in 1867, the oldest academic building still in use west of the Mississippi River, which has changed its appearance a little bit because of the fire that took out that beautiful mansard roof, but is still there uh, today and is still the heart of a thriving um, university right across the street from the Capitol. I'm gonna, um, as I said, talk uh, very quickly through the coronavirus, through some systemic challenges, really focusing on demographics and cost, and then talk about Willamette's response and then open up for questions. But 
the, the very first question I've been asked by so many people in town has been, um, how is Willamette doing in this very challenging year that has stressed um, all kinds of organizations in new um, ways? And, and the answer is that it has stressed Willamette as well, but, but we are managing uh, remarkably well. Um, now a little more than a year after um, we made the decision on March 12th of, of last year to move temporarily all of our classes online. Um, that decision, controversially um, at the time, did not include closing the Willamette campus. We have never closed um, our campus through the last year, in part because of an understanding um, that as a, a provider of residential and, and dining facilities for our students, um, we, we were really serving a population which, which needed us to continue to provide services. And so we um, focused very early and really um, focused through the summer on understanding how we could run um, the university safely um, in person um, in the presence of, of a pandemic. And, and we've been remarkably successful at doing that. Uh, you can go and look at our COVID page at any time and see um, how things are, are going. We report every case that is associated with the, the university community. But over the last um, year, we have had a total of about two dozen um, staff, contractors, and students who have uh, tested positive for COVID, all of them um, in community transmitted cases. There have been no cases identified of transmission of COVID on the Willamette University campus. Um, our most recent case was a, a student who tested positive just before returning to campus at the beginning of the semester and went straight into quarantine on arrival. And we have had no positive tests um, since then, despite um, doing both randomized and targeted testing on campus. We have still never had a positive COVID test uh, performed on campus. So we've continued to operate um, using a mix of in-person and online instruction. We've de-densified the campus. Um, most of our um, undergraduates are um, present. Most of their classes are being offered um, in person. We're a little bit more mixed in the graduate schools. The majority of our first year graduate students are taking classes in person, but not necessarily all of their classes. For example, the law school students are um, divided into thirds and a third of them are, are present on campus each week. Um, and in other um, weeks, they're taking their, their courses online. But for the most part, um, we, we, from an academic perspective, are operating relatively close to a, a normal um, operation. We do remain closed to the public. Um, the symphony has not been on campus. ICL is not meeting on campus. And we've not been able to, to hold speaker events, for example. Um, from a business perspective, it has been an extraordinarily challenging year. Um, we've had um, unplanned expenses for facilities, for technology to allow ourselves to teach classes in both in-person and, and online form simultaneously. And the, the biggest expense that we've faced has been um, to support our students whose families have been um, really struggling during this COVID year because of job losses, because of business reductions. Uh, we have had extraordinary needs for student financial aid, um, which has added millions of dollars to our expense budget for the year. Uh, we also, as 
most other universities uh, saw, saw a significant decline in the number of new undergraduate students as high school students last spring decided that they would um, wait and see. Um, we expect um, that many of those deferred students will eventually attend higher education, but of course the national concern is that COVID will, um, will result in a significant number of students who otherwise would have attended college. Um, never successfully completing a, an undergraduate degree. In our case, um, we saw about 100 fewer first-year undergraduates than we expected on campus, which makes it our um, undergraduate population the smallest that it's been in more than 20 years on campus. We did not see similar reductions in our graduate student numbers. Both the Atkinson Graduate School of Management and the law school are um, larger this year than they were a year ago. But that revenue loss has, has meant, like most businesses, that we have um, had to take some really hard decisions um, in order to manage through this year. We did do some layoffs last spring. We furloughed a significant number of employees um, for a month or two in the summer. Um, except for our lowest paid um, staff, um, we have had a, across the board um, pay and benefit reductions on campus this year, and we've done significant amounts of cost cutting. But in the end, we do expect that we'll finish this academic year with a very nearly balanced budget. Um, so we are in a, a better situation than, than many business owners um, who have had to struggle through um, this year. But because of that small class, we do expect that it's gonna take us several years to fully recover financially from coronavirus. So we can come back and talk about any of, any of that in the Q&A period. I wanna to turn to some broader challenges that Willamette is facing that are common to higher education nationally and really focus on, on two particular issues. One is the changing demographics of college age um, students in the United States. And the other is the cost of higher education, which of course is on many people's minds. Um, the, the demographic issues um, are, are really new um, in the 180 year history of our institution. Um, the, the rate of um, college attendance in the United States has been on an upward trajectory since the mid 19th century. It has been almost uninterrupted throughout the 20th century. Um, and really right up until the last decade, um, we saw first a, a growing fraction of high school graduates attending college. And then especially in the years after World War II, the extension of higher education to populations which had been traditionally underserved, first of all women, um, but then um, members of minority groups and um, people who would not have been able to afford college who had access to additional sources of financial aid. And what we saw was the combination of that college going rate and the expansion of the college franchise to bigger populations meant that the number of students um, going to higher education into higher education grew um, with only a small pause around World War II for 120 years. Um, that has ended. The, the last decade saw a flattening of the, the number of students um, attending college. And in the next five years, we expect the total number of college, traditionally college age kids um, to start falling for the first time um, in American history, I believe, um, certainly in the last 120 years. Um, the immediate cause of that is the um, financial downturn of 2008, 
as those students begin to reach college age, um, the falling birth rates during that recession is what really led to the turnover um, in the number of prospective college students. We also, especially in the last um, few years, have seen significant downturns in immigration, um, which has traditionally been a, a source of, of growth um, in higher education. And so the, the falling immigration into the United States also has an impact on, on colleges. This is a, a dramatic change in higher education. Um, we're an industry that, um, that because we were in a growing market for so long, got used to, um, to growth as a, a business model um, and as a way to, to fund um, the development of new um, areas of, of focus, for example. Um, and so even a flattening of that growth curve um, produces some new challenges for higher ed that we've not um, previously faced. And certainly um, we expect that Willamette will um, need to manage through um, these new challenges along with um, all other higher ed institutions. The other um, really significant challenge that we face along with, um, with everyone else um, is the cost of higher education. College costs have been increasing exponentially, um, literally exponentially at a rate faster than inflation um, since at least World War II. Um, for, for many decades now, certainly since I was looking at colleges, people have said that that can't continue. Um, and yet it has continued. Uh, decade after decade, the cost of college has increased. This is a really complex area. And, and I have given, um, including to local groups, an hour long talk just on the cost of higher education before. Um, it is a, an often misdiagnosed challenge. And if, if one doesn't understand the reasons that college costs have increased, um, it's very difficult to do anything about that. The, the situation is a little bit different in, in public higher education, where the, the difference between the cost of higher education and the cost that students pay for their higher education is further muddled by changes in um, public support for higher education. And you could certainly get King Alexander or somebody else to come and talk to you about the specific challenges um, the public higher education has faced due to defunding um, at the state and federal level. But um, the situation in private higher education is in some ways simpler in part because we have never um, been major um, beneficiaries, especially here in Oregon of, of public funding. Um, the, and there are lots of reasons that the cost of higher education goes up. Um, and people tend to focus on, on whatever um, resonates with them, whether it's um, so-called administrative bloat or whether it's amenities and the, the lazy rivers that one reads about in the New York Times. But in fact, the underlying challenge in higher education is the same as the underlying challenge in all sectors of the economy that, that depend um, on educated workforces that have not been able to participate in the broad productivity gains that the economy in general. Um, has enjoyed over the last 70 or 80 years. This is the so-called Bomol's cost disease. And as essentially what it's saying is that um, in most of the economy, in the manufacturing economy especially, um, rising um, productivity that comes from primarily technological advance has made it possible um, for a, a, a single worker essentially to produce significantly more value um, over the years. And in some sectors of the economy, 
um, that technological um, advance has not been able to produce the same productivity gains. And, and so if you look at the costs of those um, primarily service economy sectors that um, have not gained, um, their relative cost relative to the manufacturing economy has gone up significantly. And so what you see is that in areas like higher education, like medical services, legal services, dentistry, or classically areas of the arts, um, um, where you can't get the productivity gains that you've had in, in uh, technology, you have relative price increases that are higher than the rate of inflation. And that is especially exacerbated in areas where the workforce um, is highly educated because the as the fraction of, um, of people who take advantage of higher education has saturated, um, the value of a higher education um, has gone up. So the, the um, differential pay that a college educated worker gets now relative to a high school educated worker is as high as it has ever been. And so in some ways, because the value of higher education is going up, the cost of higher education is going up because we depend on hiring our own graduates at a level that is um, almost unparalleled um, in the economy. So those two factors together, um, which are really um, outside of the control of higher ed are what is really pushing the cost of higher ed. And I'm gonna show you a couple of, of slides in a second that illustrate this um, graphically. But first I'll just say that, that despite the fact that people have been worried about the cost of higher education for literally for many decades, um, this actually was a manageable problem for many years. Exponential cost increases sound terrible uh, and they look really scary, but when the productivity that came from technological advancement was widely distributed in its um, benefits to the rest of the economy, the people who were um, having to pay for these services were seeing their relative um, incomes go up fast enough that they could more than cover the cost of these service sectors. Um, and, and so it, 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 it feels painful, but as long as your income is going up fast enough, the fact that college and medical services and legal services are costing more um, is not a fundamental problem in the economy. That um, grand deal that distributed the benefits of, of technological growth across the economy is now broken. For the last 20 years, you, you read about income, um, rising income inequality, what is essentially happening is that the advantages um, that come from uh, productivity growth have been um, increasingly captured by a small fraction of the population, which means that for a great many people, um, they have stopped seeing their incomes increase while they continue to see the costs of higher education and other services increase. So to show that um, uh, uh, graphically, I, I have just a couple of slides here that show um, the cost of different service sectors of the economy um, in, in inflation adjusted dollars. So an increase here means that the increase in cost is going up faster than the rate of inflation. And, and you, you can see um, just a, a variety of different um, service sectors all have seen a roughly tripling of their costs in inflation adjusted dollars um, since World War II. Um, and I, 
I just like to, I mean, we often talk about the impossibility of the rise of the cost of, of higher education. We don't talk about it so often with the cost of dental services, um, but there actually are the costs of higher ed and the cost of dental services um, on the same scale um, over a, a 80 year period. And, and you see that they really are tracking each other. Um, I mean, th these are, um, ways of seeing that um, the cost challenges in higher ed are not sector specific. It is not fundamentally something that higher ed is doing wrong that means the cost is going up too fast. It is simply a reflection of broader economic forces that are really related to broader um, and unevenly distributed productivity gains, which leads you to different solutions for the cost of higher education. Now, I told you that the people's incomes were also going up. This is a, a plot broken down by age. And the red line here is the inflation adjusted um, median family income for a typical um, family that has college age kids. And again, what you can see is starting around the um, World War II through about the turn of the, the century, the average income inflation adjusted of these families tripled at the same time that the cost of college was tripling. And that's one reason that it was um, tolerable to see those kind of cost increases. But since about 2000, and I'll zoom in here, um, that um, exponential increase in family incomes has broken down. Um, the, the average family income inflation adjusted of a typical college um, parent at the moment is about the same as it was 20 years ago, even though the cost of Willamette and other institutions has continued to go up. And that's the fundamental cost problem that is challenging higher education in new ways today. Um, families don't just pay out of current income for their kids to go to college. In the United States, it has been traditional that families save over long periods of time. And so here's a, a look at family wealth again in inflation adjusted dollars. And again, the, the red, um, Bar is probably a typical age group for, for college parents. And again, you see that starting with the downturn, economic downturn of 2008, um, family wealth has never recovered um, in inflation adjusted terms. And those are the two factors, the loss of income growth and the loss of, of savings that have led to this um, curve, which has been discussed ad nauseum in the press and, and certainly around many um, family dinner tables, which is the student loan crisis. The, um, with the cost going up and the revenues of families going being flat at best, um, you see families having to borrow um, more and more money and a larger and larger fraction of that borrowing leading to delinquencies among people who have borrowed for higher education. So those are the two big issues that higher ed faces systemically. The, we're in a, an industry that's no longer um, a growth market um, for the first time ever. And we have a, a product that, are, that is very difficult to um, gain efficiency in and that is increasingly out of range of um, the resources of the families that, um, that not only um, want to, to participate in higher education, but because of the growing value of higher education, the 
um, failure to serve these families locks people into um, an environment in which economic mobility is, is harder than it ever has been. So trying to figure out how to continue to serve people who can't afford what we have traditionally offered is an enormous challenge. So how are we responding? First, I think it's important to understand that Willamette today is a very strong institution. We're financially strong. We have the largest endowment um, we have ever had, one of the largest endowments among private institutions in the Northwest at about $280 million um, currently. Um, we are reputationally strong um, with uh, Liberal Arts College, which is traditionally um, always ranked in the top five, certainly in the, the Pacific Northwest, usually around number three in the Northwest. The top MBA program by rankings in Oregon, the oldest law school um, in Oregon and certainly one of the regional leaders, especially in public law and, and business law. Um, we have a, an enviable location and the, the core of a, a manageably sized city that offers opportunities to our students and, and obviously right across the street um, from a state capital, um, as close to the, the wheels of government power as any institution um, in the United States. And, and we have thousands, literally thousands of successful and influential alumni um, out in our region and around the world. But that's not enough. I mean, tomorrow, uh, Willamette tomorrow, if we look at where Willamette is going, we need to find ways to be bigger in scale, broader in scope and bolder um, in our aims. And the reason for that goes back in part to cost control. Um, I, I, I told you that efficiency is very difficult in, in high touch service industries. Basically, if you can't, um, it, the, the only way to, to have more efficiency in, a, in an educational setting is to put more students into a class, um, which lowers the quality of that program. So it's very difficult to, to gain significantly in efficiency in a field like higher education without fundamentally modifying the, the qualities of the product that you're offering. That said, efficiency is important and, and we need to rigorously focus on aligning the resources that we do have with our core mission of educating students. And we've been really focused on that um, for the last decade, um, certainly. Fundraising is really important um, historically I'm going back to the very first meeting uh, at Jason Lee's house on February 1st, 1842, in which the original board of trustees of Willamette announced our first fundraising campaign to raise $4,000 to buy the current property. Um, we have been an institution where the, those alumni have been supportive of future students. And, and as Russ knows well, um, the alumni groups have, have really risen to the occasion. Um, We've set records for unrestricted annual giving in each of the last few years. We've already broken our record this year with months to go still in our fiscal year. And overall, we've raised about $75 million in the last four years, mostly for student support. And then price and financial aid strategy is important. As, as um, incomes and, and costs diverge, it's been really important that we be more transparent and direct about the way that um, tuition is connected to to what we do. And part, part of that at Willamette is that we made a major move this year to cut our undergraduate tuition, our list price by 20% for next fall, um, which moves us um, to be the price leader among our peer groups. But finally, and most importantly, really size is critical. The only 
real way to get efficiency in higher education is to share the fixed costs of maintaining a campus, a president's office, an advancement office, a library, a career services across more students so that each student has to pay a smaller fraction. And what you see in the history of higher ed is that the minimum um, sustainable size of a higher ed institution has grown um, just as the cost has gone up um, in order to manage that efficiency. And, and so in the long run, an institution which could um, in 1903, when that first picture was taken, survive just fine with 300 students and in the 1970s could survive fine at 1200 students, today needs to be substantially bigger. There are, there are few stable institutions below 2000 students today. And you really need more scale than that to be able to control costs. So growing the institution is a critical part of addressing that fundamental problem. But once you make a decision to grow, and especially if you're making a decision to grow at a time when the market is not growing, um, you have to make some strategic decisions. And, and for us, the decision we have made is that we need to serve a broader set of students. It's not that we need more English majors or more classics majors or even more chemistry majors. We need to attract students to Willamette who would not previously have seen Willamette as an institution that could serve their needs. And furthermore, that, that growing breadth also lines up with the um, needs of our students after higher ed. We um, have had a strong undergraduate liberal arts program um, for, since our founding, um, but increasingly the connection between the liberal arts and the professions is really important for our students in order to um, get that first job after college and to succeed um, in today's workplace. And especially as we think about areas like public health as we've seen this year where policy and science um, and social science um, all come together, um, together with storytelling and effective um, persuasion, you really see that the challenges that our students are being asked to go out and meet in this um, world are increasingly interdisciplinary. And that really requires us to be broader in the way we think about educating those students. And then finally, the mission of Willamette has always, again, since our founding by a group of the first um, businessmen in, in Salem, Willamette has always been um, organized around a mission of serving the Northwest by educating leaders across um, all sectors of civic society. And that's what we intend to keep doing. So in the last few years, you have um, seen a lot of news on this. We were really looking at two different kinds of growth what we call organic growth, growth from strength. So we have, for example, always been the, um, the, or for many years anyway, have been the only institution which is both a nationally ranked liberal arts college and a top ranked business school, but we've never taught, or Russ will remember it, I shouldn't say never. For more than 20 years, we have not taught um, business at the undergraduate level since we closed our business economics program. That's changing. Um, we have a new Bachelor of Science in Business Management, um, which is being marketed now and will um, be open for enrollments next fall. We've added new cross-school programs that draw on faculty from law management and the, the liberal arts and sciences, um, including in politics, policy, law, and ethics, um, in public health, um, it's in sustainability. Those are all already some of our biggest programs. And then this year, we launched a new both Bachelor of Science and Master of Science in Data Science. Um, with a 17 master's students in data science and another dozen certificate students 
Um, and we have one student who's actually completing both a bachelor and master's degree in a total of three years plus a summer. So those are all um, new opportunities that can attract new students. Um, and then what we call inorganic growth, growth by acquisition. Um, this summer, um, the Claremont School of Theology, um, which is the West leading um, ecumenical and interreligious school of religion, moved to Salem. Um, the, the plan has been for uh, incorporation of CST into Willamette as, an, as a school. They have had challenges legally in selling their property in Southern California, which has blocked uh, formal integration of the two schools, but they have moved their programs to Salem and are, are functioning as an affiliate of Willamette um, for the foreseeable future and, and offers a, a new set of um, cross registration opportunities for our students. And then as probably most of you know, we will soon be merging. We're just waiting for a final approval from the Department of Education at the moment, the Pacific Northwest College of Art in Willamette. Um, it's the region's flagship art and design school. It, it will, in addition to providing new um, opportunities for our students and for their students, um, it will allow Willamette to build out a full-fledged um, second campus in Portland so that we will be located both in the, in the um, governmental center of Oregon and um, in a different way in the commercial center of Oregon. And we're already talking about advancing um, new degree programs at the master's level in human-centered design and creative computing and some other areas. So this is, as one of the ads for this talk um, showed you, generated quite a lot of attention for Willamette. Um, when I talk about Willamette um, being bolder, what I really mean is a shift in the way that we think about ourselves. So for decades, we have been positioned as a liberal arts college, a national liberal arts college, one of the five um, in the so-called Northwest Five of Reed, Whitman, Lewis and Clark and Puget Sound as our peers. Um, and we've happened to have two graduate schools which were only loosely coupled um, to our identity as an institution. But we thought of ourselves as competing against that set of, of um, liberal arts college institutions. In the last few years, we've really shifted um, to positioning ourselves as the Northwest leading private liberal arts university. Um, so the College of Arts and Sciences is our foundation. It has been since we were founded. Um, and that's what sets us apart in some ways from the other mid-sized private universities like Gonzaga and Portland and Seattle in the Northwest, which are professionally dominated at their undergraduate level. Um, we will always be arts and sciences dominated. Um, as an undergraduate institution, but we're really seeing our professional offerings in business law, computation data, art and design, and, and religion as being central to our, our identity and, and the connection between those as being an important part of what we can offer to students. Um, with our current growth plans, that will take us to about 3,000 total students. We plan to grow to about 4,000 in the next decade um, between Salem and, and Portland, still with the center of mass in Salem, but with a larger number of programs in Portland. And increasingly, um, we are positioning ourselves as what would be called a, a professional doctoral university and looking at schools like Dartmouth, Rice, Richmond, and Wake Forest as being the appropriate comparator set rather than Whitman and Reed and other undergraduate only institutions. So it's really a big change in the way that we think about ourselves relative to where we were 20 or 30 years ago. But as any student of Willamette's history knows, time goes in circles and we're really not that different 
um, from the historic Willamette. This is an ad from 1903 for an institution with plenty of schools starting with medicine there. But I'm gonna stop there and open it up for questions and, and I think uh, we can follow these tracks anywhere that we wanna go. So I think George is gonna moderate for us. Thanks again for, for your attention. Thank you very much, uh, President Thorsett. Uh, I noticed it says the normal department and being an educator in Salem, uh, do you see the normal department returning? I, I think that um, as many of you know, Willamette uh, spun out its undergraduate um, education programs into a school of education and then folded the school of education. Um, it's been six or seven years now since we closed the school of education. That was really a, a decision that we made around what Willamette's role was in the education of teachers. I, I think we, we see the education of future teachers as, as a important um, part of our mission, certainly, and the disciplinary um, instruction for a future physics teacher or future English teacher is a core part of what we want to do really well. What we decided was that um, we did not want to be in the business of competing for the fifth year credentialing piece of a, a teacher's education. It was too commoditized in Oregon for us to um, compete on the basis of quality. Um, the, the employers of future teachers cared more about where the disciplinary education was than where the fifth year credentialing program was. So we got out of that business. That said, there, there's a lot that, um, of strength that we have, especially in the Atkinson School as we think about um, the management of not-for-profit and governmental organizations, where we think that um, we have some opportunities to do some really interesting things well in the education of leaders um, for schools and school districts. And so we continue to talk about whether there is a, a path back into graduate education of, of teachers that is really focused on that um, piece of the educational challenge, but we don't have immediate plans to do it. It's, it's something that is um, probably still a few years out. Okay, well, thank you for that uh, response. I just wanna remind folks that um, uh, if you want to uh, ask a question of Dr. Thorsett, uh, uh, you can uh, look at the, uh, you can raise your hands. Uh, you should have a button on your screen for that. Uh, or you can write your response um, by using the uh, Q&A button. And we have uh, two people who have, or, uh, who have uh, asked some questions here. Uh, the first one is, uh, would you care to comment on the current uh, debacle concerning the OSU President uh, Alexander? Not particularly. Um, I, I mean, I, I don't have any inside information on either the search or the, the current situation. And, and I've not um, been in the last week or two really keeping up on the news there. Um, so I, I really don't think I have anything to add. All right, another question. Uh, please comment on the role of uh, people who are making money from student loans and the increasing cost of higher uh, education. Yeah, I, I think that the management of the federal student loan program and the oversight of the, the private student loan um, industry is, is really important. It is um, one of the things that, that we look to the um, US Department of Education to do. And the, um, 
I mean, one of the challenges is alignment of the um, Department of Education's incentives and tools um, with the, the, um, the problem. I mean, federal student loan, one of the real challenges for me with the federal student loan program is the high interest rates, the, especially um, for the guaranteed student loans. Um, these are relatively risk-free loans for lenders. And, and so finding ways to reduce those interest rates um, has been something that, that certainly the association, the Alliance of Independent Colleges that are sponsored today, but their national counterpart, the National Association of Independent Colleges and Universities has been focused on. The challenge is that um, the way that the revenue bills in, in Congress work, um, the reductions in student loan income have to be offset in the spending bills in ways that um, are difficult politically for Congress to work through. And so we haven't seen the motion on, on that that all of us, I think, in higher education would like to see. The bigger challenge um, in recent years around um, loans, um, be, I shouldn't say it's a bigger challenge. The interest rate challenge is one that, that affects all um, people who take out student loans. But the, the challenges that we have around um, the ability to repay student loans have been largely challenges around oversight of um, what you, you might call predatory um, higher education institutions, many of them for-profit institutions, which have relied on the availability of student loans to, to offer degree programs to students who are not ready to successfully complete those programs. And, and by far the largest fraction of students who fail to repay their loans are students who start and do not finish higher education programs. And in, in many cases, it's the smaller loan balances, which are more at risk for not being repayable than the larger balances. Um, in, for students who, who go to reputable institutions, who borrow money to go to reputable institutions and to earn um, their degrees, the, as I said very quickly at some point, the, the return on investment for higher education is greater than it's ever been. And so a, a very small fraction of graduates of institutions like Willamette um, run into serious difficulties repaying loans, which are typically comparable to, to the scale of, of automobile loans, but for a lasting um, benefit in the, the marketplace um, on salaries. So it, it really is a government oversight issue around uh, misuse of the, the loan program, largely, but not entirely. Um, involving for-profits. And then it is these structural issues that Congress has not been able to deal with around interest rates that are, I think are much higher than they ought to be. Okay, let's see. Uh, I think Cindy Condon has a question here. I do, thank you, George. And thank you, Dr. Thorsett for being here. Um, I, like many people, I'm sure viewing this, or is a, I'm a graduate of the Atkinson School and um, many years ago. And I'm wondering, given your growth um, uh, plans and just the change you're looking at is if you're looking at your relationship with the city of Salem and its citizens differently for the future um, and how that will impact Salem and certainly Willamette as well? Well, I, I, there, there are several pieces to that. I mean, I mean one of the, 
the, um, I mean, we want to be an important institution for the city of Salem. Um, I, I think that the, um, it is not universally true, but it is largely true that, that healthy cities rely on relationships with strong higher education institutions um, to help both attract and educate the, their workforces. And, and Willamette, especially in the Atkinson School, but, but in the law school as well, um, I think has been um, really thoughtful for a long time about how to integrate the experiential education of our students with the needs of local business and not-for-profit organizations. And certainly we expect that that will continue to be true. And we hope that that those kind of opportunities will grow as the number of students engaged in, um, in management and business um, grow. I think this, this broader question of um, the, what's sometimes called the Willamette bubble, how do, we, how do we break out of the Willamette bubble and bring the whole university into conversation with the, um, with the city of Salem? I think is one that is in some ways being addressed by some of these cross-disciplinary programs, which are bringing more of a public, um, a, a connection to policy and and to um, and to the kinds of decisions that that cities are making into the classroom with our students, and we hope we'll then get our students out into the the city, um, and so you see that in. Um, in everything from um, you know David Griffith and chemistry department working on um, pollution in the Willamette um, with his students on a National Science Foundation fellowship to Melissa Buisse-Michaud who's doing work in the penitentiary on restorative justice in seminars that are that are half and half Willamette students and incarcerated um, individuals and thinking about how to connect um, people back into society as they, they leave incarceration. And, and so those kind of practical connections, I think, are um, easier to, to advance with some of the changes that are taking place in our curriculum. I don't know if that answers your question, but, and, but then we certainly also um, want to continue to um, grow opportunities for city, for city resident engagement on campus. Certainly the symphony coming back next fall will be great. The, the um, really um, deep um, connections that Halley Ford has built over the last 20 years um, in the arts community in Salem is important, but we'd like to, to continue to find ways to bring people onto campus once COVID is over. Okay, uh, let me see. I think we have time for one more question. Uh, uh, how do you respond to those who feel that a liberal arts degree is not useful for developing a career? Well, I mean, the, the easiest way to do it is to, to just point to the historical evidence, which is that uh, the graduates of, of liberal arts programs do well um, by essentially every measure um, in their career. So if you look at um, return on investment, for example, if you look at mid-career salaries for graduates of Willamette, they're, they're not quite as high as, as at Oregon Tech, um, which is, has often been the, the sort of highest ROI among Oregon institutions, but they're not far behind and, and salaries tend to grow as you move um, into mid-career and beyond. But, but you can also, I mean, there are a number of studies of, um, that have been done. For example, there's a, a long running study called the Oberlin, the Oberlin Group study that the National Science Foundation has done about um, leadership in the STEM fields. And what they find is that graduates of liberal arts colleges are, are grossly overrepresented 
um, in PhD programs in STEM, but also in the National Academy of Sciences and other top tier um, sort of leadership areas of, of science. And I think one of the reasons for that is um, a, a reason that Jim Albao shared when he was on campus um, giving a talk a, a couple of years ago. He is the, we'll have an alum, um, former president of, of um, civil aviation at, at Boeing, the president of the National Association of Aeronautics and Astronautics, very eminent um, engineer, um, went to Columbia for grad school. And, and what he says is that he learned really to be an engineer at Columbia in his master's program, but he learned to be a leader of engineers at Willamette. That's where he learned to read, write, and think. It's where he learned to, to lead groups of people. And I think that liberal education, when done well, um, is providing those cross um, sectoral skills, which are really the foundation for people, not just for that first job, but, but for the leadership challenges that come later in career. And, and so our focus now is, um, is not to dilute the quality of that, but to provide the additional connections that students need for that first step as it's become harder to make the transition into, um, for example, the high-tech industries. So, but I, I, I am absolutely confident that, that at our heart, the arts and sciences um, are both our strength and the most valuable thing we can provide for our students. Well, President Thorsa, thank you very much for speaking to us today. Uh, and I will now turn it over to uh, our president, Sharon. Thanks again. It's been fun. Thank you so much. And thank you, Dr. Thorsa, for your uh, very interesting presentation. <laughs> we, uh, we love having Willamette in Salem. So uh, glad you're here. Thank you. Remember that we have three more programs this year. Next up on April 16th, we'll hear from the Willamette River Keepers. We hope you'll join us. Visit, city, Sal <laughs> Visit SalemCityClub.com for more details. Thanks for attending today. I hope you enjoyed the program. This audio is made with Audio Toolkit for Windows Store, downloaded for free now.